In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have you ever been on a snipe hunt? I've been on a snipe hunt. This is a spoiler alert. I was 12 years old, spending a week at a Christian camp called Living Waters. It was in the middle of Pennsylvania. I was staying with uh, several uh, boys my age in a dingy cabin with a leaky tin roof. I was on the top bunk fast asleep, and at 1 a.m., I was jostled by my camp counselor who said, wake up! I obeyed, and I got out of the bunk, and I stood on the ground, and I said, what's going on? And he thrust in my hand a black garbage bag, and then shoved me out the door and slammed it shut. And I noticed all these other campers in pajamas standing around me, half asleep with a empty plastic bag in their hands, and, uh, and, and I said, what are we doing? <laughs> and the counselor from inside the cabin said, happy hunting! I shouted back, what are we hunting? And somebody else on the outside, another counselor said, we're hunting snipe. I said, what's a snipe? He said, it's a bird. I said, how are we going to hunt birds with plastic bags? He said, you just run around and catch them. I said, why are we hunting snipe? He said, well, we, we have to have something for breakfast tomorrow. We're out of food. And you know, at one in the morning, a lot of things make sense. <laughs> and so I thought, sure, this is reasonable. And so I, I went snipe hunting with this group of pajama young men in the middle of the Pennsylvania forest. And uh, you, you couldn't find snipe. They're really difficult to find. And, uh, but you could hear them on occasion. I heard one once, and, and uh, what it was is a counselor had like a squeak toy, and, like a dog toy. And, and, I, and, I, and he said, I heard a snipe. And I said, it sounds like a dog toy. <laughs> and he said, that's what snipes sound like. And I thought, okay, well, it's one in the morning. Of course, yes, that makes sense. Well, two hours in the forest, we sat around, frustrated, looking at our empty bags, thought, what are we going to do? We've disappointed the whole camp. Nobody's going to have breakfast tomorrow because we can't roast snipe all night. What's going to happen? And that's when the counselor started to laugh and laugh at us. The joke was on us. Evidently, snipes exist. They just live in New Zealand. And so our, our search was both funny and in vain. Many of us in life have been, uh, have been uh, uh, set by circumstance or ambition on quests that have no fulfillment, uh, on journeys, on searches that lead nowhere. In the fifth chapter of Amos, the prophet is tasking Israel with a heroic search that, unlike a snipe hunt, is actually profitable. And so it's about seeking that I'd like to speak tonight. There are selected verses here in our passage from, from Amos chapter 5, and we get to see his theme rather clearly. It is an invitation to seek God and seek good. They're both related and connected, though can be differentiated. To seek after God and to seek the good. By the way, if we even come close to understanding a tenth of this, our lives will be about 70% happier. 
So uh, I want to consider the first search, which is to seek God, and then uh, to, we'll, we'll deal with the second one, to seek good. But, but before we get there, let's just consider the invitation in general. Uh, the first two invitations are God-oriented. The third one is good-oriented. Verse 4, seek me and live. Verse 6, seek the Lord and live. And then finally, verse 14, seek good and not evil that you may live. Note three general things about the invitations. Three general things, true of all of them. First, uh, the one who first extends a reconciliatory gesture and invitation is God. Therefore, God is the ultimate seeker, not Israel. The only way Israel can seek is because God has first sought after them. Remember Romans 3, the darkest chapter in all of Scripture, the one that you read if you want to be clinically depressed? There is no one who does good, no, not even one, and no one searches for God. And that is entirely and universally true. The only way you can ever be in a position to search for God is if you are the recipient of a divine search. Uh, and so this is not about will or strength. It's about the God who searches first. Seek me, he says, but he's coming to you to invite you into something. Point two, it is not too late for Israel. And that's an astounding thing, given the tenor of the book of Amos so far, which is fire, rain, and wrath. And at this point in the book, he takes a pause from that message, an inter intermittent pause maybe, and says, I'm now extending my wrist to you. I'm extending my hands. Seek me and live, because it's not too late. To quote one lyricist, there is no journey gone so far, so far it cannot be stopped and changed in its direction. Your doom is not sketched out in the stars. God is now reaching out for you. It's not too late. And the third general comment, the ultimate intention of God is not devastation but life. Seek me and live. It says it three times. And live. Have a better life. Have a better kind of existence. Have a healthful way of relating to the world around you and to me. So those three things are present and undergirding all of these invitations. But now we'll get more specific to the first one. Seek God. Let's focus in on verses 4 and 5 to really get the point. Thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, and do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Uh, God says, Seek me, do not seek Bethel. Now that's interesting, only because Bethel, the Hebrew word Bethel, is translated into English as house of God. Bethel was a, uh, a shrine site, a sacred site for the northern kingdom. And so the prophet is saying, seek God, but not the house of God. And that's a weird statement. Because you would think that the two go together, right? God seems to belong in the house of God. Seems to be like water in pipes or a body in clothing. But what we're, we're seeing here is God telling people to seek himself rather than the shrine sites of ancient Israel. And the shrine sites are Bethel, Gilgal, and Beersheba. These are places of pilgrimage, places of religious expression and devotion and adoration. And God is saying, don't go to church. You would think for a deity this is bad for business. 
Why is God emptying his shrines? It's fascinating because at least in Amos chapter 5, the prophet does not charge his audience with either adopting a dulling secularism nor of adopting paganism into their worship. Instead, his critique relates to how they're entering into perfectly orthodox worship. We know it's orthodox worship because of the things that he says in verse 21. This is how they're practicing their faith. God says, uh, rather shockingly, I hate, I despise your feasts, your solemn assemblies, your burnt offerings, your peace offerings, your songs, and your harps. Now, who is the one who commanded all of these things in sacred scripture? God. God was the one who organized the whole process of Israelite uh, worship, of how to enter into the presence, of how to communicate and commune with God. And now he's saying, every time you enter into worship the way that I have requested, I hate it. Strange. Why would God hate what he's actually commanded people to do? The problem is, in major part, that Israel loved religious ritual over substance. They started to worship worship and created out of worship a surrogate deity that looked closer to the genuine article than Baal or Asherah, but still was not the genuine article. This is a recurring issue in Israelite practice and theology. We see this in the debacle of the temple. You may know that that after the, the situation in Egypt, God asked Israel to construct a movable place of meeting for himself and his people known as the tabernacle. It was a canvas cathedral. They were able to move it in the wilderness, and God would meet directly with his people in this movable house. It was a movable house because it was meant to send a quasi-sacramental message that God is omnipresent and not nailed down or fixed in, a, uh, in an immovable space and structure. God is the God of the world. King David had an idea late in his career. He said, I have the best idea ever. I'm going to build a shiny house for you in Jerusalem. And, uh, and God says, no, thank you. And he says, in fact, David, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build out of you a great dynasty that will last forever. And David said, that's great. I'm going to build you a house. Uh, he didn't really understand. Uh, and then David eventually, of course, dies in, without building the house. But later, Solomon does. And from then on, Israel and God, it seems, has an ambivalent relationship with this secure, beautiful, lovely temple. Jesus has very little good to say about it. But they fell in love with the temple and believed that if they had the temple, they would somehow be legitimate and secure. God would be with them. He's there in the shiny box. And so they fell in love with religious ritual and placement and geography and boundaries and uh, liturgies. And because of that, they, the very things, some of the very things that God gave them uh, became idols. It's like what happened with the serpent in the wilderness. Do you remember that? Moses lifted up this bronze serpent. The people who were bitten by snakes looked at it. They got well. What did they end up doing to the bronze serpent? After a few hundred years, they started worshiping it. 
happens time and time again in Israelite history, but as, as we know, Israel is just uh, in some ways a petri dish for all of human experience. It is sure easy, friends, to worship worship. Many Christians don't so much worship God as they worship dignity. They like uh, uh, worship services to be tidy and neat uh, and, uh, and put together well, and it becomes too much of their focus so that if something goes wrong, their whole worship experience is entirely flattened. Some people uh, worship feelings. They think worship is always to give you a sense of euphoria, happiness, or comfort, and if that isn't your experience, you had no encounter with God. Uh, some people have lots of opinions about music in worship, so that even if the lyrics are perfectly orthodox, if they don't like the instrumentation or they don't like the tune, they won't sing it. There are very easy ways for all of us to, uh, to take a very good thing. It's great to be thoughtful about worship, great to be thoughtful about space, about, uh, about how we sing, about how we encounter the Lord. But if those things and our opinions about those things uh, become too inflated, we are not worshiping Jesus. We are just worshiping our own ideologies and opinions which we have placed above him. And our opinions, friends, no matter how good they are, are not on par with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These surrogates enter into our experience, and God is warning his people about these surrogate shrine sites. He's warning them. They all have an expiration date. He says in, the, in this passage, Gilgal, your precious shrine site, will surely go into exile and Bethel will be nothing. All of these places that you think are the locus of divine energy, are superconductors of divine power, they won't exist in four years. And then what? Then what happens to you and God? Is it all over? Or does God in some sense transcend houses built by human hands. He wants them, in other words, to latch on to that which is eternal and everlasting, which is not bound up in the hourglass experience. Because here's the thing. Whenever the bottom drops out for us, Gothic architecture will not matter. Prayer book liturgy will not matter to you at that moment. What will matter to you, chiefly, I hope and pray, is a redeeming and loving connection with a Christ who discovered you and loves you as you are and not as you should be. Without that, we haven't got a lot to say. But with that, then we can use all our forms and use them to the glory of God and trust that they will draw people past themselves to a redeeming Christ. And uh, so that's seeking God. Let's say something about seeking good, social good. Verse 14. Seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. As you have said, hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the gate. There is a holy task to be accomplished. For Israel, it was to show justice at the gate. Now, what's the gate? The gate is an institution. It is the place where juries met, where elders met to decide cases. It's a judicial place. 
It is a place where injustice and indignity are resolved. And in the Old Testament, justice and God's shalom was not this ethereal concept to be, to be debated as much as something to be imperfectly embodied uh, in this world. Imperfectly because we're imperfect, but it was to be embodied in some sense in the mess of this world. Uh, it, it, and in this case, justice was to be uh, reestablished at the gate because the gates, the courts, were failing the poor. They were failing the people who needed justice and dignity. And God cares, we, we learn from this text, God cares about those superstructures, those uh, powerhouses, those uh, societal uh, structures that affect and sometimes afflict his own image bearers. Martin Luther King Jr. totally realized this. He said that you need to do individual work with people, and you also need to do broad societal work. You need to do both. And the holy task of God's people is to be present in those places as salt and light, as influences, not as dominators, but as influence that leaven the whole lump, kingdom influence. And note the result of this kind of social good where you take your own place at the gate. Notice the result. It says in this passage, so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. With you. That's a technical phrase in the Old Testament. goes back to Abraham, and it's present in the tabernacle, the sense of God's withness, his presence, his Emmanuel nature, to God to be with you, connecting to you in a way that is not destructive, but only helpful. Uh, this is how uh, God's justice and uh, shalom are fully known uh, and his presence more fully realized when we care for his image bearers when we care for those little mirrors, because everybody in here is a little looking glass that reflects something about God. You reflect something about God as an image bearer, and you reflect slightly differently than me. We all do. And that's why we all need each other as image bearers. And when we all start reflecting well, we see God more clearly. God becomes more known as we are in alignment with the divine purpose, divine shalom, and divine justice. And so that's the result of social good. The Lord will be with you, and people will know it. Now, that's interesting. It doesn't say he'll be in the temple. It says he'll be with you. He'll be in your community that acknowledges justice and righteousness. Now, I'm going to give you a little story of one man, a religious professional, who discovered sufferers at a gate and who sought the good, sought to bring dignity. His name is Henry Nowen. Uh, Roman Catholic priest uh, who passed away uh, several years ago, theologian, author, professor uh, at Yale and then Harvard. This is what he writes uh, very uh, candidly and because of that refreshingly. As I entered into my 50s and realized the unlikelihood of doubling my years, I came face to face with a simple question. Did becoming older bring me closer to Jesus? After 25 years of priesthood, I found myself praying poorly and living somewhat isolated from other people. And then now, in this gesture that can only be regarded as miraculous, quit his tenured track at Harvard. I mean, there are PhDs in this audience. Is there a snowball's chance? I mean, I'm just saying, would you ever do such a thing? Quit his, uh, it had to be the Lord, you know. 
resigned from his tenure track at Harvard and joined a, a community in France called La Arche for men and women with intellectual handicaps. This is what he writes. These broken, wounded, and completely unpretentious people forced me to let go of the self that can do things, show things, build things, and prove things. Forced me to reclaim that unadorned self in which I am completely vulnerable and made weak and receptive to God. Now and later reflects on the Good Friday service at the large community. And he writes, We were all there. And we took the huge cross that hangs behind the altar and held it so that the whole community could come and kiss the body of Christ. And they all came. More than 400 people, handicapped men and women and their friends. As they were crowding around the cross, kissing it, I closed my eyes and I saw the immense suffering of humanity during the centuries. Mobs killing each other. People dying from starvation and epidemics. People driven from their homes. People sleeping on the streets of large cities. People clinging to each other in desperation. All crying out in an anguished voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken us? But as I opened my eyes, I saw Jack, who bears the marks of suffering in his scarred face. And I saw Ivan carried on Michael's back. I saw Edith coming in her wheelchair. As they came, walking or limping, seeing or blind, hearing or deaf, I saw the endless procession of humanity gathering around the scarred body of Jesus, covering it with their tears and their kisses. All of these restless souls then comforted and consoled by great love. At that moment, the cross of horror became the cross of hope, and the tortured body became the body that gives new life. In Nowen's quest for the good, he perceived God. Through God, this is fascinating, it's symbiotic. In other words, it feeds off each other, the two ideas. Through God, he saw people, and then through people, he saw God. Three concluding words, and then I'm done. They're brief. First, seeking God. Amos preaches a God who is the ultimate seeker and who wants to be found by you. He is not a needle in a haystack. He is not a disappearing vapor. He is not avoiding or evading you. It takes some work to seek, friends. Seeking God in this life as fallen beings is not easy, and it's not going to always happen naturally, according to what our appetites dictate. It takes some work, but God has left us access points. Access points. Stars in the night sky. And they are the proclamation of the church, the sacred scripture, the sacraments of the church, the community and the love that we have for each other, and uh, in natural revelation. You have a whole book out there in the world called Natural Revelation, which you get to see glimmers of that which is ultimate, he who is ultimate. Remember, friends, what St. Augustine said. If you want to see God, you have the means to do it. Now, seeking good. God commands that Israel establish justice at the gate. 
a specific institution, what is your gate? What is your institution? We're all connected to something. Whether it's a formal institution or an informal one, a school, a committee, a league, a PTA, a household, a neighborhood, a courtroom. Is God showing you injustice, indignity, hurt, grime, sin? Do you see the need? Do you see the societal misfit who just can't catch a break? Do you see the single mother who has so little job training that she can barely get by with her minimum wage job? Do you see the immigrant family who's struggling to even learn the language? Do you see the kid that's being bullied whose life is a waking nightmare and who is only a few days away from a suicide attempt? Do you see the addict who can't stop? Do you see the, the family that is on the verge of complete collapse? Or do you see your own threshold? I mean, maybe it's your own house. Maybe it's your wife. It might be your husband. It might be your children. Do you see the need? Because here's the thing. You bring with you an eternal quality. Because Jesus said of you, not try to be. He said you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. And you might not think you're much. But according to your Lord and Savior, you are not right. You're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. Yeah, you've got problems, i got problems, everybody's got problems, but if you wait to do anything until you've got no problems, you won't do anything, because you're always going to have problems. Seeking the good. Lastly, the guarantee. It's a good guarantee, a gospel guarantee. If it is your life's ambition to seek not surrogates, but the real God made known in Jesus Christ, you will find him. You will find him. Life, friends, is not a snipe hunt, and God is not a snipe. God is not evasive. God is not elusive. You will find. How do I know? Because Jesus told us. This is the guarantee, not from your preacher, but from Jesus Christ. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, the door will be opened to you. For everyone, everyone, Everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. As my camp counselor said, with a stupid, cheeky grin on his face, (laughs) happy hunting. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.